This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. On last week's program, we talked about speaking today with Professor Josiah Thompson. We've decided that to better outline what is a complex topic, we're going to put it on next week's program or the week after. That is, to better serve you, dear listener. Josiah Tink Thompson is one hell of an interesting person, having gone from being a university professor of philosophy to a private eye. What we're planning to do instead for today's program is bring back our good pal, Sean Minton, who in our third segment today will take a look back at the late, great Harold Ramis. But let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question today is the 3rd of July. It was in July 3rd in 1775 that George Washington drew his sword at Cambridge Common in Massachusetts and rode out in front of the American troops, formally taking command of the Continental Army. And it was on July 3rd in 1863, on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Confederate General Robert E. Lee made his last attempt at breaking the Union line. It ended in a disastrous failure, bringing the most decisive battle of the American Civil War to an end. From that point on, the South was always on the defensive. Here's one for Mr. McMillan. It was on July 3rd in 1920 that William Tilden became the first American tennis player to win the men's singles title at Wimbledon. Mr. McMillan is himself a tennis player and big fan, which, of course, we're grateful for because it keeps him out of rehab. On a lighter note, it was on July 3rd in 1940 that the legendary American comedy duo of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello debuted with their network radio show on NBC. Make a note of that, Mr. McMillan. When it comes time for the All-Star Game in a week or two, we're going to have to do Who's On First. July 3rd in 1957, Nikita Khrushchev took control of the Soviet Union by orchestrating the ouster of his most serious opponents from positions of authority. Khrushchev's action delighted the U.S., which viewed him as one of the more moderate figures in the communist government of the USSR. And it was on July 3rd in 1971 that The Doors' lead singer, Jim Morrison, was found dead in a bathtub in Paris, France. Morrison, 27, was taking a sabbatical from his hit rock band when he died of heart failure, likely caused by a drug overdose. Morrison had christened the band after Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. Our quote of the day, oddly enough, comes from the obituary for H.R. Geiger. He was a Swiss surrealist artist who passed away last month. He was famous for creating the titular monster in Ridley Scott's Alien and created a great deal of cover art, such as Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's 1973 album Brain Salad Surgery. It was noted that tattoo artists and sci-fi fans loved his rather unusual work, but critics dismissed it as gothic kitsch, which leads up to our quote. Said Geiger back in 1979, My paintings seem to make the strongest impression on people who are, well, who are crazy. All <laughs> and our quip of the day comes from a tape recently uncovered by uh, some sort of conservative operative. 
who apparently pawed through some unpublished interviews in the 1980s done with Hillary Clinton, housed at the University of Arkansas. Apparently, Clinton was describing a time she successfully defended an alleged child rapist back in the 1970s. Noted that Clinton admitted that her 41-year-old client was probably guilty of raping a 12-year-old girl. But, said Clinton, during her interview, he took a lie detector test. He passed, which forever destroyed my faith in polygraphs. Well, you can bet that one's going to resurface during the Clinton run for the presidency, soon to be upon us. Our quote today comes from the writers for Craig Ferguson, who noted, I guess it was about a week ago, Kim and Kanye are honeymooning in Mexico. Republicans and Democrats agree that if there's ever a time to seal the border, this is it. And our bonus joke of the day, I don't know whether we use this on the program, but uh, if we did, we'll use it again. Noted the writers for Seth Meyers. A new study shows that red wine can boost short-term memory. Three or four glasses and you're guaranteed to remember your ex's phone number. Our good news for the week is a heads up for listeners in Central and South America. On July 5th, the moon is going to pass in front of the planet Mars. At least if you're in Central or South America. Apparently you'll be able to see it also in Cabo. But are we going to go down to Cabo just to see this lunar occultation? Well, no. But uh, again, for listeners south of the border... In South America, you'll be able to see an occultation of Saturn two days later on July 7th. And having the moon go in front of a planet is kind of a cool thing. We should correct something we said on this program many years ago, which was that on occasion, these occultations or transits, depending on how you look at them, where one celestial object blocks out another one, are rare and marvelous events. We reported on this program, evidently incorrectly, the one of KDVS's general managers had witnessed the passing of the planet Mercury in front of the planet Uranus. But in doing some research on this topic, we discovered the last such incident where a planet passed in front of another one was, in fact, in 1818. And the next one is not due until 2065. Radio Parallax apologizes for any confusion. We assume no one was inconvenienced by this data. And our anecdote of the day for today's program, which really isn't an anecdote at all, in that it's not a personal tale by someone, is the news story that the annual dog meat festival in the central Chinese town of Yulin has been disrupted this week. Evidently, an influx of animal rights activists demanded that the dog slaughterhouses be shut down a week ahead of the holiday. In most years, about 10,000 dogs are killed and eaten during the Summer Solstice Festival, but this year vendors said consumption dropped sharply. The traditional but unofficial festival may be on the way out as city authorities are no longer promoting it, apparently because the bad press it brings to Yulin outweighs the tourist bump. Now, we here at Radio Parallax have mixed feelings about eating man's best friend. But I do have to confess that there have been some canines I've known that I would have been happy to have seen making a nice Thanksgiving feast for someone. Our stat of the day, 
According to Rasmussen, 60% of Americans think that the Washington Redskins should not change their name, while only 26% think that they should. It was noted that 61% think that the U.S. has become too politically correct. I think we'll look ahead for the rest of this month using Discover Magazine's science calendar for July 2014 to note that tomorrow, the 4th of July, also marks Rube Goldberg's 131st birthday. Note of the magazine, cutting the cake in honor of the late cartoonist and inventor should require at least 12 steps, including a mousetrap, cuckoo clock, robotic leg in a boot, and a hamster running in a wheel. We also note that on the 12th of this month, the commercial use of Morse code, which ended in the U.S. in 1999, will be commemorated at the Maritime Radio Historical Society's event, taking place at a Marconi-era station along California's Point Reyes National Seashore. We might just attend that event and report on it for you. We also may attend an event on July 26th in San Francisco commemorating the 45th anniversary of the moon landing. Buzz Aldrin's going to be there. And we would love to have a chat with the Apollo 11 astronaut. I was not aware of this fact until I was reading a book on Neil Armstrong. And by the way, we're, we may bring the author of that book onto this program later this month. But apparently, Buzz Aldrin pretty much saved the effort to get to the moon by his ability to master the EVA, extravehicular activity, on the Gemini 12 mission. Apparently, America's three previous attempts to go outside the spacecraft, that of Ed White, Michael Collins, and Gene Cernan, all ended in near disaster as the men had a great deal of difficulty maneuvering. Apparently, Buzz Aldrin was able to put his MIT degree on celestial mechanics to work, deciding how to best move about. Aldrin apparently did his EVA and passed with such flying colors that NASA was then convinced that they could do such maneuvers in the future. And we certainly hope we'll be able to talk to astronaut Aldrin about this mission and, of course, the landing on the moon. All right, in terms of our letters to the editor, we'd like to quote something that was sent not to us, but to UC Davis Magazine, which is the publication of the UCD Alumni Association. Wrote, Fellow KDVSer and Radio Parallax guest Bill Wagman, the host of the Saturday Morning Folk Show, writing to the magazine, Bill said, I was a bit surprised to learn that one of the reader comments that led to UC Davis Magazine's format change was that some readers found the stories, quote, too long, unquote. It is disappointing that a major academic institution which prides itself on intellectual accomplishments would submit to the request for pieces that more closely follow the pattern of sound bites and tweets. It also brings into question the level of education we are providing to UC Davis students in the 21st century. After reading that, I emailed Bill saying, boy, do I agree with you on this. Bill wrote back to say, I forget, what did I write? <laughs> Mr. Wagman is apparently currently engaged in frolicking about in the North Pacific Ocean, somewhere near Palau. I asked him to please file a report when he gets back, and he said he will do so. And we should also cite a letter to the same publication from Stacy Forster Pena, class of 88, writing from Los Altos. She said, I enjoyed your spring 14 piece, One to One, Aggies Compare Notes on Working at KDVS Radio. KDVS was a very memorable part of my college years, both working as a DJ, 
queuing vinyl albums and loading 8-track cartridges, pre-digital music, and as publicity director, typesetting the publicity guide and laying it out on paper pre-desktop publishing. It was without a doubt the most fun I had while at UC Davis, forever cementing my love of alternative rock. And we have to agree now, and I guess it's our 12th year, that we enjoy being here at KDVS as well. And although we did not receive an email from film aficionado Matt Perry, he did call me last week to note the sad passing of Eli Wallach. I learned about this from Matt, who cited the fact that he did enjoy our interview with the legendary actor on this program some years ago. He was indeed one of Hollywood's finest character actors and was in demand for over 60 years. We'll try to talk a bit about Eli Wallach on next week's program. But this does sadly sever our link to the good, the bad, and the ugly. At least the wonderful 1966 Sergio Leone film wherein Eli Wallach co-starred with Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood. We do plan to continue using the classic Ennio Morricone theme to lead into our segment of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I think we'll do now. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for partiers. After a New York City firm called IV Doc began charging $250 to send a nurse to a hungover person's home to intravenously administer restorative fluid. Said a customer, if you go in feeling like a two, you come out a half hour later feeling like a seven. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for rocking the boat. After a motorboat crashed into a floating runway light at New York City's LaGuardia Airport because the captain allegedly left the helm to engage in a drunken menage a trois. Said, said New York City police, there's a moral here. Drop your anchor before you drop your pants. You know, and frankly, that's a principle we've always tried to abide by here at Radio Parallax. Because playful activity should not be allowed to endanger maritime safety. And it was an ugly week last week for people's sense of entitlement with the news that an ex-Goldman Sachs trader is suing the investment bank because it awarded him a discretionary bonus of just $8.25 million, almost $5 million less than he told his mother he was getting. Let's make it very clear, said Deeb Amin Salim at his arbitration hearing. I was one of the most sought-after investment professionals in the mortgage industry. Goldman calls his lawsuit utterly ridiculous. We would agree, but on what level? And it was both a bad and ugly week last week for, well, not just Luis Suarez, but I think also sport in general, with the news that the Uruguayan soccer star sank his teeth into the shoulders of Italy's Giorgiano Cellini during a World Cup match. This apparently is the third time Suarez has been caught biting a rival player. Now, while we have taken a position here at Radio Parallax that soccer could use some added excitement, we just can't agree that this is the way to go about it. We should note, by way of a follow-up story, that Suarez apparently told FIFA's disciplinary panel that he did not deliberately bite 
the Italian defender. The Uruguayan striker's defense is that he lost balance and fell onto his opponent. Apparently on June 25th, Suarez wrote a Spanish letter viewed by the AP which said, In no way it happened how you have described, as a bite or intent to bite. After the impact, I lost my balance, making my body unstable and falling on top of my opponent. At that moment, I hit my face against the player, leaving a small bruise on my cheek and a strong pain in my teeth. Should be noted that, however, a seven-man panel dismissed his argument. They ruled that the bite was deliberate, intentional, and without provocation. Mr. Millen is running down the rumor that Mike Tyson has sent him a sympathy card. We do note that back in Montevideo, Suarez has been welcomed home as a hero by Uruguayan fans. And we have no way of knowing whether there's any connection between this and Uruguay's recent moves to legalize cannabis. Another World Cup news, apparently Ghana's president has removed the Minister of Sports and his deputy from their posts in the wake of the country's poor performance in the World Cup. Ghana's president, John Mahema, gave no reason for the order, but it came after the team finished at the bottom of Group G. It failed to win any games. Players went on strike over unpaid fees, and two players were indefinitely suspended for insubordination. We also want to cite the coverage of the World Cup in The Economist. Well, let's just quote from the piece. The winners of the Football World Cup will not be known until July 13th, but the tournament is already sporting success. Draws, especially of the goalless variety, have been mercifully rare. And in fact, the magazine published a chart of the number of games in the World Cup versus the number of draws among those games. I am relieved to note that apparently the only scoreless tie in the finals of the World Cup was the 1994 game, the one I sadly witnessed. That year, the number of draws as a percentage of total games played was 21. Four years later, it spiked at 30. And was it 25 or 23, the last three World Cups, but dropped down to only 18 this time so far. We do like the heading that The Economist placed on the graph, which was more scoring, less snoring. There's also another graph from The Economist, which we find irresistible, uh, based on the fact that Tuesday, July 2nd, was apparently World UFO Day. July 2nd is, of course, the anniversary of the alleged crash of Flying Saucer near Roswell, New Mexico, back in 1947. But we love the graph they published showing America's UFO sightings from the year 2000 to 2014. The graph includes working hours, which they describe as 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., drinking hours, which is 5 p.m. to 11 p.m., and sleeping hours, 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. There appears to be a rather strong correlation between UFO sightings and drinking hours. And personally, I wonder if the data isn't a bit skewed by the fact that I think the Brits tend to knock off early in their drinking, whereas in America... Last call is like at 2 a.m. If you, if you look at this graph as the drinking hours being, let's just say, 1 to 2 a.m., then by hour of the day, UFO sightings are never more than 2 per hour for working or sleeping hours, whereas they spike to over 8 at about uh, 10 p.m. Now, of course, a correlation in time does not prove causation, but the magazine did note there did appear to be a spike on 
especially Friday evenings when folks might be sitting out in the front porch nursing their fourth beer. This might be a time to hear from our good pal, America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about the Washington Redskins being stripped of six trademark registrations by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, which is usually as controversial as cilantro. Their reasoning was the football team's name was disparaging to Native Americans, and thus in violation of laws banning offensive language. Although to many Americans, it's the locational part of the name that is most repugnant. Conservatives fear this sort of thing could snowball and cause many nicknames to be rethought. For instance, should the Pittsburgh Pirates be compelled to switch their name because it could be considered offensive to families who have been pillaged? What about the Fighting Irish? Do you really think drunken leprechauns with fists cocked are responsible role models for today's university students? The Utah Jazz is an odious appellation to anybody possessing a modicum of musical taste. And the name, Oklahoma, is Choctaw for red people. Should they be forced to repeal their name, or or can we just get rid of the state altogether? What about people? Does the same logic mandate that anybody named Hitler has to change their name so as not to remind victims' relatives of their crimes? Adolf? Manson? What about Bush? And if owner Daniel Snyder does cave to the rising controversy, which direction will he go? Something indicative of the town? The Senators won't work. Baseball tried, and it depressed the players so much the team was forced to move. Twice. Or he could attempt to capture the true spirit of the town with the Washington Slippery Slopes. Or the Ethical Sliders. If you want intimidating, how about the Washington Filibusterers? Or the Drones? But if honoring the Indian nations of America is, as you say, your actual goal, how about the Washington Treaty Breakers? Ooh, that's scary. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. He's a national treasure, and we're glad to have him. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, where we got plenty more. Don't go away. Thank you.